by using that first party data to target those users that are already familiar can start engaging midway through that sales journey. Um, because of this, you can focus on less touch points before the conversion, saving you money you know, on, on additional ad impressions. And then you can also produce more creative and customize these ads to speak specifically to these audiences. That's Lauren Reedy, Solutions Architect at Mountain, our sponsor on this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast. Later in the show, Custom talks with Lauren about maximizing first-party data to create precisely targeted campaigns with engaged audiences across CTV. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie-Weissman, the Editor-in-Chief here at Modern Retail. This week, I'm really excited. We have Jen Liao. She's the co-founder and president of Mila, which makes, among other things, uh, soup dumplings, which is one of my favorite foods. But there's a really interesting story with Mila, uh, just in terms of how it grew, how it began. It started out all online. Now it's expanding slowly into some stores, and it also has some really raised a recent round of funding, and they they have some really interesting co-founders, including celebrity Simo Liu. Uh, I want to talk about all of this, the expansion, just how you're... I'm always so fascinating to talk about when you are a food startup that begins predominantly online, how the economics work, which I think is something you're probably thinking a lot about, Jen. How are you doing? Thanks for joining. Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing okay. I can't complain. So first, why don't you tell me a little bit about your your background and how how you ended up starting Mila, because Mila is a, a relatively new name. It's, uh, you were a different name before then, right? Exactly. So we actually started as Shotsuje, and we ha- we do have one single restaurant location. So we opened the restaurant location October 2018. Um, it's a fast, casual spot. And a little bit about my background, I actually was in the health tech biology world before this, so very different. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and essentially was uh, working at this company called Avidation, which is a health tech company, for about six years. And And during that time, my husband and co-founder, Caleb, uh, we started a restaurant called Shotsuje together with our co-founder, Norman. And so for about a year and a half, we had this fast casual spot and we really just wanted to eat our favorite street foods that we had grown up eating when we went back to China to visit our families. And uh, during COVID, we had to, of course, shut down for a little while. And during that time is when we started to experiment with frozen soup dumplings. So then the e-commerce side was born and we started to experiment with starting to deliver the frozen soup dumplings first within a close radius of the restaurant. And then we uh, expanded further and further away as there was more demand and a lot of referrals outside of that close radius. And then Greater Washington and then Pacific Northwest and then nationwide by the end of 2020. So uh, that was very exciting times. Wow, that is a wild trajectory. But I want to go to the the first not pivot, but change. What, you know, you said you just wanted to eat your favorite street foods. Was that really what made you want to start a restaurant or had you always wanted to start a restaurant? Because it's a very different margin structure. I imagine maybe at the beginning you were making less money than you were in health tech, though. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yes, it definitely was not my income stream. Uh, (laughs) I think we were mostly, I think, so our main hero item at the restaurant is something called Sinjin Bao, which is a pan-fried soup bao. And it's very delicious, but you do have to cook 
for example, 70 of these bao at once in a cast iron pan and then sell out within 30 minutes because it is very crispy and hot, which is delicious. And uh, it's from Shanghai. It was Caleb's favorite food. One of our friends, Norman, who we had started this with, had been asking if we wanted to start something together. And his first thing was a poke restaurant. I'm allergic to fish, so I had (laughs) said no to that. Um, But he kept asking, you know, if we wanted to do something together. And I asked if he could start a restaurant that sold this particular item so we could go eat it. And the intention wasn't really to go into restaurants or the food industry at all. And uh, slowly he kind of pulled us into it. And before we knew it, we had opened the restaurant together. So uh, it truly was for our own, you know, passion project. And it wasn't really, it was, of course, operated as a business where we could at least break even on the restaurant itself. uh, But it wasn't necessarily at the beginning meant to expand into a larger operation. Got it. Did you ever have ambitions pre-pandemic that you were going to make this into a CPG play? Absolutely not. Did not think about that route at all. Wow. Well, look at you now. Uh, that's that's pretty wild. I was doing some research before, and I, I think I read that it was, you know, one of those things, I, I covered it back in 2020, and I, I feel like every city was doing it, where if you were a restaurant, you closed, and you figured out how best to do it. Some of them started markets. Others started doing e-com. And you you guys did a, like a Google form, right? It was pretty much where like you did it. Can you just walk me through how you were able to 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 get that and get that off the ground? Yeah. So essentially, we started playing around with the frozen soup dumpling. We were literally manufacturing, let's say, one bag that day just to see if it was possible, and we did. Uh, have a path to be able to do, let's say, 10 bags a day. And so we had sent out a, a Google form over WeChat, which is a Chinese messaging app. So my mom actually formed this neighborhood group um, for Seattle for people who had tried Shotsuja before. And in the WeChat group, she sent the Google form out. And then Facebook also had uh, a lot of activity from different communities that were supporting local businesses. So this was like a Facebook Seattle restaurant support group. And one of our friends posted in it with our Google form asking if anybody would be interested. And we did have quite a bit of interest the first day. So then kind of immediately, we were able to bring in a couple folks back. Uh, We had already done a few deep cleans for the restaurant to keep people employed. But for this, um, once we had the interest, we brought a couple people back into the restaurant to make the soup dumplings. And then we had a few other people who were driving kind of no contact drop-offs in order to bring them to folks' home. And it was literally in a brown paper bag and a Ziploc bag. And we would text people who entered into the Google form when we dropped it off on their porch because it was no contact. And then they would come out and take it into their house, which actually worked really well for us because it is a frozen product. And it was very lucky that everyone was at home when we had started this. Wow. So Ken, like, I want to jump forward a little bit because soup dumplings are something that need to be frozen. And shipping frozen things and scaling that is really difficult. I think I read that you now have 90 people working in your facility. Is that true? Or is that more now? This was at the start of the year. so Yeah, we have about 100 across the entire company. Uh, so that includes corporate plus production plus customer service. Uh, so altogether about that. Wow. Can you talk about how you were able to make it so that 
the product worked and didn't become degraded and how like you, you how you built out an entire supply chain with that because that's you know you didn't have you didn't really have an entire like CPG back end with you at the time I imagine Yes, exactly. So it took about a year and a half to get to what it looks like most similar to our current model. And we're still continuously iterating and changing our packouts, our SOPs in order to get it to people successfully. So in the beginning, as I mentioned, it really was people driving like ourselves um, whenever we had to fill in to drop off on people's porches. And that was okay because everyone was home and they could immediately take it in. Um, But we discovered along the way that soup dumplings are actually as sensitive as ice cream to melting because of the dough. So when it melts, it will stick together. And then because it's soup dumplings, if it melts and you pull it apart and there's a hole, then the soup will leak out. And so it was really important to us to maintain the integrity of the skin and the dough and the product throughout this whole process. So... When we were expanding away from, you know, driving and dropping them off, we did use local partners to deliver within, you know, Washington itself as a radius. And for those, we started to pack in dry ice. And again, you know, started with something like just liners. We had dry ice. We had these local delivery partners who were helping us to drop it off. And as we expanded further and further, we had to get a lot more disciplined around what materials we used. And um, I think a big shift was when we started to work with 3PLs, so other warehouses that would pack it and then ship it out. And we set up the shipping networks um, with them, whoever, whichever networks they used, we would negotiate rates and then have those set up. And essentially for these third-party you know, warehouses, then we had to come up with all the SOPs and we had to order materials that would get sent to them in order for them to pack it correctly. And we would have to give them guidance on how much dry ice, for example. And they would start to expand you know, to other states for us. And then we had to account for different temperatures in different states and different weather conditions. And so then we have to go for the maximum pack out in order for it to arrive frozen. And actually, our first year, we had worked with a single uh, shipping provider who had three different warehouses that we could utilize for this purpose. And we had actually about 20% failure rate for our soup dumplings where they would arrive melted. And that was obviously very painful because we had a we established pretty early on a melt-free guarantee so that way people could actually have the product as intended since you can't really return, you know, a melted dumpling and then have <laughs> it replaced. So we had a melt-free guarantee, we would reship it. But the 20% failure rate was just very painful. And it wasn't necessarily, you know, all from the warehouses. It was also because UPS and FedEx were just slammed during 2020 since they were, you know, set up for more commercial deliveries and now everyone was residential. And so they had to build out their networks for that. But then their um, guarantee on on-time deliveries, they they took that away during that time period. So we had to just really, really hustle in terms of putting together the right supply chain for it to arrive not melted. So then we shifted away from this larger partner to individual warehouses that we could work more closely with. Um, So that way, at least we could eliminate all of the melting issues before it got shipped out um, with UPS and FedEx, for example. And then UPS and FedEx, essentially how we solved for that was building out enough warehouses where we could have two-day ground shipping almost guaranteed or um, within a certain threshold that we defined for the company. And the two-day ground shipping was the most reliable. Air is fast, but then if it gets stuck, 
then that automatically extends it one or two days or it just, you know, completely disappears into the ether a little bit. And so two-day ground shipping was what we went with. And then we looked at coverage maps and just made sure that we had all states covered within two days. You sort of tended at this, but I want to go a little bit deeper because it's something that I love to geek out on, which is uh, fulfillment in 3PLs. And specifically when you have a bespoke product like yours that requires, uh, it's a very high touch. Or I don't know if high touch is the right word, but like it re- requires a lot of of spe- specifics tied to it. It sounded like when you were working with the national player, it just because of the the general way it was difficult to do it. So you had to do it on an individual basis. What does onboarding look like when you're working with these individual players, and how how are you able? Do you have a system to ensure that they know exactly? how to handle your dumplings, what to do? Because I imagine it's it's one thing to give instructions, but it's another one to make sure that they're actually following them, you know? Yep, exactly. So uh, it was a lot of, you know, in-person going there, setting it up, uh, doing the packouts together, doing a few trial runs, writing up very detailed SOPs. And then I think uh, what actually really helped is that because we were relatively high volume for a frozen D2C company, we actually then were, and we were rigorous with data from the very beginning. I think a lot of these warehouses really liked working with us from a leadership perspective because then we were helping them with a lot of the analysis. So we would say, "Hey, this had two day, you know, uh, rate uh, two day uh, ship ship time, or this had three day ship time, or like this arrived melted, and when we diagnose it, it actually probably started from the warehouse. So we need to make sure that the temps are you know this temperature before we actually ship it out, and it's stored at this degree, and then we're packing it at this temperature, and this is the exact pack out. But like we used a lot of data to work together with them, so it's less of a qualitative, hey, you need to do better, yeah. and more like we ran the analysis and then we showed them the exact protocol on how to do it. And because we were relatively large as a frozen D2C company, even at our like tiny size in the beginning, we actually could get fairly good rates for some of the materials that they also needed. So we negotiated dry ice rates um, across all of our warehouses and, you know, box rates across our warehouses. And we were able to include those warehouses and their other clients into those rates. And so then they could save on other clients as well. So they were very uh, uh, willing to work together with us as a partner. Got it. I wanted to ask actually about that because this is the one thing I hear from f- food and specifically frozen food founders that that do DTC is that the margin structure is awful, specifically because of what you're talking about. So how how do you combat that? Like it sounds like you got good rates, but even with those good rates, was that enough? Yes, it was pretty decent. Um, I think for us. As we expanded, of course, the further you go, the more expensive it is. So Seattle, let's say, is like half the price as, you know, a nationwide shipping thing. And so as we went further, we were just very disciplined about keeping the rates around the same as what we started, even as we scaled up, because that felt very important to us as um, a company that could have a higher ceiling of skill across our products. And if we had to charge, for example, $80 of shipping on top of everything else, then that would, you know, it's still a feasible business, but a much smaller business. And most frozen shipping, I, I think the average consumer doesn't really realize how much shipping costs, especially for frozen food. But other shipping companies that do mostly gifting, for example, 
they do add a $75 to $80 shipping rate on top, which is packaging, dry ice, and the actual shipment fee. And we wanted to bring that way down in order to keep costs okay for the consumer as, you know, just an average price of a product. Absolutely. Did you have to change the ingredients or the process of making it to make it work as an e-com product? And how how did you do that entire process? Uh, so we actually haven't changed the ingredients or the quality of ingredients at all. And uh, so that I think we really, really care a lot about because we started as something where we care about being chef-crafted, restaurant quality. And so we haven't changed the quality of the ingredients. I would say the actual manufacturing process, we haven't changed the way that we do it, but we have obviously scaled much more efficiently. So it's less about like, hey, these pieces, we've always done it this way, we've changed it, and it's more we've become more efficient because of scale. And so that's the same thing with the ingredients where we're able to keep costs reasonable because we scaled. And as we scaled, we were very disciplined about renegotiating rates because we had scaled up. And so if we scale up and then we have larger volume, we have more leverage to negotiate a lot of our vendor contracts. And so we can keep the same quality while keeping the, the prices down or about the same even as we scale further. All right, we're going to take a quick break right now. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. I'm Christina Ko, Senior Editor at Custom, Digiday Media's and Modern Retail's in-house agency. In this podcast, Interstitial Story, sponsored by Mountain, we speak with Lauren Reedy, the company's solutions architect, about the power of leveraging first-party data within CTV campaigns that outperform upper-funnel efforts. Because of this this new world for CTV, it has kicked off a bit of an arms race. All of these brands are are looking to maximize CTV's capabilities, um, and one of those, you know, is really leveraging first party data on this channel. I think it's also worth keeping in mind that even if you aren't doing so right now, your competitors most likely are, and they're taking advantage of CTV to try to grab more of that market share possibly out from under you. (laughs) So let's talk about first party data and where brands can find it. Like we've been saying, you may be sitting on a gold mine of this data and not even realize it yet. When it comes to such an aggressive space, it's vital that retailers remember to keep in mind what their competitors are doing and try to get ahead. One way to do this is by taking full advantage of their first party data. So first, of all, first-party data is likely holding your most valuable audiences. So let's talk about that. These are people who are familiar with your brand already. Whether they've engaged with you in some way, they've done their research, explored who you are, what you have to offer, they know who you are, at least to some extent. And because of this, they are likely gonna be you know, more uh, likely to convert, not just once, but again and again, by using that first-party data to target those users that are already familiar can start engaging midway through that sales journey. Um, Because of this, you can focus on less touch points before the conversion, saving you money, you know, on on additional ad impressions. Um, And then you can also produce more creative and customize these ads to speak specifically to these audiences. So for instance, using first-party data to target people who are in your loyalty or rewards programs you can then show them personalized personalized ads that hones in on their specific customer journey. So maybe you offer, you know, a specific deal or a discount to bring them back to the site 
or to spend more in their transactions. If you, you know, if you spend X, save X amount. While prospective customers are still valuable, using first-party data to retarget existing customers allows retailers to capitalize on a very lucrative sector of their audience, provided they are able to segment these customers in the right way. The point here is really think strategically and um, you know use that first-party data. It holds some of the most valuable audience you know info that you have, full of past, present, loyal customers. But think about it carefully, segment it based on exactly, you know, who you want to target and why, and then strategize how to deploy it and and think about, you know, how we might want to target those different groups with specific creative as well. And then step two, putting it to work with CTV. So this means utilizing the power of CTV's targeting and measurement tools. Um, allowing you to serve customizable messaging that resonates with your first-party audience. You've been listening to Lauren Reedy, Solutions Architect at Mountain, our sponsor on this episode. And now, back to the Modern Retail Podcast. How have you done quality control at scale? Because I imagine... You know, when when you're in a restaurant, you're able to look at every dumpling and you have the recipe. But when you're sending it nationwide to you know hundreds of thousands of people, it's it's a it's a much different calculation. Uh, so we do do, for example, QAQC. We do have it a, a a whole team and department for that, and it just has to be, for example, spot checks where you take dumplings from each batch and you do a cross cut, and then you analyze, for example, what's the dough ratio, what's the filling ratio, what's going on. And you do have equipment, you know, especially as you get certified for USDA or SQF, um, you have like a metal detector, for example. And so that at least can identify any dangerous components that are going through. Um, But outside of the spot check, we actually do have everyone touching every single dumpling because we throw out ones that have holes um, when we are either it has come out from the machine and we're about to move it to freezing. Um, people are placing it onto the mats. And at that point, you can throw out any that are um, very clearly misformed. And then after freezing, sometimes that can also have holes or they might stick together if they shifted on the mat, for example. And so then we'll throw those out in the process of bagging. So I think there's a lot of pieces of automation, but we also do have a person in the loop to ensure quality. Got it. Makes sense. Let's talk about the last year or so. So you you've done a few expansions. You you have you you've, you're beyond just uh, soup dumplings now, right? Yep. Yes. So what what was the product expansion, and how how did you choose which areas to go into? Yep. So we started with soup dumplings, and our first next product was actually Chinese skewers or sawkal. And this was my favorite street food, which is why we had done it. And I think for our product philosophy, it was really to do things that were value add to the ecosystem or some had some kind of unique differentiator. So there weren't a lot of Chinese skewers in the market in the U.S. And if they were, they're in restaurants, but still fairly rare. And we hadn't come across um, very many that had been done well. So we moved into this, especially because it could also be a good summertime item since soup dumplings can be associated with colder weather. And so mm-hmm. we started with that as a second item. And we also had released ice cream. And that's what we had done as the first two items. And then following uh, last year in October, we released 
uh, noodles. So that was probably our big kind of next hero expansion product. And so for noodles, we had released an entire line. And that actually took a couple of years to come to fruition. We were originally going to release it in 2021, but we did a beta test. And at the time, we only had Danda noodle, uh, the spicy noodle. And when we did the beta test, there were still a lot of people, even within our own consumers, that were unfamiliar with um, the spicy component. Uh, and in this case, for Sichuan spices, it's mala. So it's a, like a tingling, numbing sensation. And half of our consumers had never heard of it, had never tasted it before, even within like the tighter Seattle area. Really? I'm, so I'm surprised by that. We were also surprised. Uh, and that basically led us to rethink how we launched the product. There were a lot of requests to reformulate it in a way that took out the spice or no. made it adjustable. Exactly. So like that is kind <laughs> of actually a very main key component of the dish itself. And so when we thought about it, we're like, how can we solve for this without compromising on what the dish is? And so our solution was, I guess we just have to make two other noodles so that People have an option, and it's not that their first impression, uh, like if they really love soup dumplings and they were willing to buy whatever you know we else we put out there, and their next impression is something that they didn't have a good experience with or they didn't know how to eat, that would also be bad. So then we expanded to a variety noodle pack where there was something for everyone, and that was kind of the idea. Got it. Yeah, to have... A dandan noodle without Sichuan pepper in it would just not be a dandan noodle. Yeah. Um, um, what have you found? Like, are you finding more people as you introduce this line are glomming onto the 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 less spicy ones, or are people try trying the spicy one and totally fine with it? Um, most people try the spice. So I think. Um, most people know themselves of whether they like spicy or not. <laughs> so I think if people like spicy, they definitely go for the Danta noodle. It is our most popular noodle and they really like it. I would say that about at least two thirds of our consumers identify as liking some spice. And so they do go for the danda noodle. And then for the other noodles, um, it's especially for people who know that they don't like spicy and they will be, you know, repeat customers of the non-spicy items. Got it. Got it. Um, can you talk a little about, because you have begun, and I, I haven't, wasn't able to find any update with this, but I know that you've done a little bit of a retail rollout in the Bay Area. Is that correct? Yes. So we just launched in Costco Bay Area um, a few weeks ago. Oh, how's that going? Also, Costco, is that is that your first uh, account or first wholesale account is Costco? We are doing a couple of tests in Seattle first. So we released in Met Market, Town & Country, and QFC in some select locations in Seattle. And for us, really, that's to run tests to see, you know, shelf placement, pricing, um, category, having, you know, multiple flavors, no flavors, like all of these different things, combinations to test like, hey, if we go into this market, what does that look like? If we have different locations, what does that look like? So we did those tests starting in uh, April, end of April, and then Costco would be our first large account that we're rolling out into. So we're, we released in all of Costco Bay Area uh, two weeks ago. Got it. And like, 
Costco, I we have a, we had a story I want to say like six months ago, although who knows what time is anymore about how more online brands are using Costco as a way to expand. Um, but it's such a different type of shopper and like thought process than it is for say a QFC, uh, where like that that's just your normal grocery store. You know, you go, you buy. Oh, there's a bag of dumplings. I'm gonna get that at Costco. You're buying a much bigger thing, and also it's less less merchandising like it's it's a much more scaled down so how how are you how is that going how are you approaching that i know you're only two weeks into it so you can't give me like numbers about it but like what what are you thinking about um it's going pretty well uh we have beat their estimates by about 40 percent already so wow congrats yes (laughs) so i think um that's going well as a first rollout right now and it is very different and they do have a much larger freezer section than some of the other grocery stores so that works in our benefit i think a lot of shoppers also go to costco for frozen items versus some of the other grocery stores it kind of just depends on how they've other grocery stores have positioned themselves how large the section is maybe it's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem as well in terms of um, what's available and interesting to shoppers. But for Costco, I think that's worked out well for us because obviously online we have a large family pack to start with. And so that sizing, I think, isn't too different than what a lot of people have seen in our ads or our online you know, e-commerce site. And so I think the Costco piece has worked well so far. Got it. That's great. So let's talk about earlier this year, you announced a pretty big fundraise and you also announced both an investor and a celebrity chief creative officer. Is that the right? Um, yep. And Simu Liu, uh, can you just give the background behind it and sort of how that plays with your growth and expansion plans? Yeah. So uh, for the fundraising, we brought on Stripes for our second round of fundraising and our first round with was with Imaginary, and they also participated this round. So uh, for us, because we're moving into retail and we are vertically integrated, we wanted to get ahead of this in terms of our manufacturing facility. So a lot of it will be going into building inventory for retail, going into a new manufacturing facility for retail, scaling the team to be able to handle omnichannel, which is actually, I think we expected some complexity, but it is an exponential complexity and not an incremental complexity to go into multiple different channels, especially if you're manufacturing your own items. So uh, that was for the fundraise. And then bringing on Simu has been really great. I think he's been a great partner to us in terms of being engaged and thoughtful and participating in different ideas. And now we have a streaming campaign that's launched on two commercials that have him in it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I wanted to ask, I know that he's involved, like he's sort of a spokesperson figurehead who's in these campaigns. He also provides like, you know, ideas and, you know, brainstorming, correct? Like how much of, I always love talking with people like you who bring on, you know, a well-known person and they get a a new title, but like, what does it actually mean and how does that change your day to day? Yeah. So Simi Liu, he's our chief content officer. And essentially what that means is, uh, I think the way that I would describe it is a mix between a board member, exec, and advisor. That's the type of role that he plays. So we're talking about a lot of different 
um, big campaign ideas and different strategies to be able to um, broaden our reach or reach different people. And how do we storytell? How do we participate in, you know, different areas or events, for example, that maybe we weren't thinking about before? And so we're really looking at how can we leverage um, his position, his platform, his ideas to expand beyond what our core audience or our core uh, areas are. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. Can you talk a little bit about the marketing? So you say you have a TV campaign. What has your marketing traditionally been? Who have you been targeting and how is it now changing given that you have you know, a celebrity tied to it and you're trying to expand your audience beyond your core audience? Yeah. So I think uh, for us, up until this point, it has been about 90% of Facebook, Instagram. On the paid side, we do have a good chunk of organic and referrals. But on the paid side, it's been about 90% Facebook, Instagram. We've dabbled in TikTok and um, we do a little bit of search, for example. But um, that has been the predominant way of advertising. And we've paired this very closely with our organic social strategy. So we do a lot of organic social content and we actually see the the things that perform well translate also to the paid side. So I think we are a little bit creative in terms of what is an ad or what isn't an ad. There's lots of UGC that we leverage on the paid side as well. Um, I think some companies are doing a really good job of that um, as well, but it's not always produced ads right now on Facebook. Instagram is a lot of UGC, a lot of influencer content, a lot of our own content that will splice into something of an ad format with maybe different language around it. And I think for Simu, uh, the way that we have worked on it is for the TV campaigns, it's just a different level of production. And so if you're going into a different level of production, you also want this to, the budgets are also a different level of production, but um, you want everything to tie in and make sense. And uh, especially for streaming, that that quality and the format is very different from performance marketing and direct response on something like Facebook and Instagram. So making sure that we have a well-balanced set across all the different channels for paid is important. How difficult is it to do digital performance marketing for a product like Frozen Dumplings where like you're you're sort of, I don't think, I've never seen an Instagram ad and be like, well, I'm going to buy some frozen food. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it's a different type of purchase than a lot of people make. So how have you been able to to get that into the mindset of people who you're trying to get in front of? Yes. Uh, I also wouldn't have thought that people would see that type of ad and think to purchase a <laughs> soup dumpling. So we didn't imagine that it would be, you know, the skill even from the very beginning. And for our first ad, Caleb had actually pulled it together himself. And he took some stock images on the internet and he took stock music. And then he literally spliced together a very simple ad. And that's what we had started with. We did have the benefit that during COVID, advertising was very cheap on all of these social platforms. And so then we were able to experiment with a lot of different ads. And that lasted us a really long time. I think we used that ad for about a year. And then after that, we had to start filling 
filling the pipeline with a lot of different content. Um, but I think to get started just to test it is easy. You can put something out that costs like $1 to make if you want to and see if there is just general interest for the product in the category, which we even saw with that stock image, stock music combo from the very beginning. Got it. Well, we're just about running out of time, but I have a million more questions I want to ask you. But I guess first, what are what are the big plans for the year now that you have this money, now that you um, or this fundraise, I should say, now that you are testing out the Bay Area Costco? Is it more distribution? Will we see national distribution on the horizon or is it more products? What are you thinking about? We are rolling out to other regions with other partners and continuing more tests this year. So uh, we will be launching in Central Market in Texas, and we are going to be launching in Wegmans on the East Coast. And so we have a couple of retail partners that we're excited to test for. And then we have a couple of others that are more, you know, national chains doing a section of that for testing at the end of the year. So we're doing a lot of retail testing just to see how do other different audiences respond to it in different locations and placement of it. And then on the other side, we always kind of have a product-led philosophy. So we're continuing product innovation, um, probably still starting with more D2C product drops and then rolling into retail uh, as we go. Got it. Yeah, I wanted to ask, given given that you're going into wholesale and distribution, do you foresee ever a time when you would stop DDC? Because that like just is so difficult to do at scale. And like most other companies, they just sell to grocery stores and that's their business. I don't think we would stop D2C. Uh, I think we would try to figure out what is the right ratio of distribution. But I think D2C is very important to us because we do have a direct connection to our customers and we're able to ask them direct questions. Like we do email surveys to ask what kind of product they're interested in, um, signing up for beta tests, like you know, having qualitative field interviews with them, also quantitative surveys that we're sending out to them. So I think it is very important to maintain that line and then test out different products because I think to us, we see a pretty, uh, there. there's definitely a gap in the market for some of these Chinese foods, whether traditional, classical, or, you know, the newer third culture foods that we hope to also start to take a look at. And so with that gap, then there's so much that we can try. And it's much easier to try with our D2C customers and get honest feedback than to do a whole retail rollout right from the get-go. Got it. Makes sense. Well, Jen, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thanks for the questions. And thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it. See you next week.